0: Welcome to the Church Times podcast. I am large, I contain multitudes. So wrote Walt Whitman in his 1855 masterpiece, Song of Myself. The American poet's 200th birthday is on Friday, 31st of May. In this week's Church Times, Dr Michael Robertson, author of Worshipping Walt, the Whitman Disciples, argues that while Whitman has been celebrated as a poet of democracy and a poet of nature, among other things, his religious purpose is often underappreciated. As well as writing in this week's Church Times, Dr. Robert spoke to Madeline Davies about Whitman's life, his literary and religious influences, and read for us some of his remarkable poetry. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Church Times. For £10, try 10 issues, along with full access to our website, archive, and iPhone and iPad app. Or for the same amount, two months full online access, including our website, digital edition, archive, and app. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new reader.
1: So for um, those of our readers who aren't familiar with Walt Whitman, um, can you just introduce him for us um, and his place in literature?
2: I think Walt Whitman is widely seen as the greatest American poet and the father of modern American poetry, along with, it has to be said, Emily Dickinson. But the two of them are widely regarded Mm -hmm. really as the father and mother of all modern poetry, uh, um, not just American, but I think uh, English language poetry. Um, Dickinson brought to modern poetry a freedom with traditional forms and a skeptical, ironic, elliptical style that hugely influenced the modernists. Whitman was the first person to really use free verse for serious poetry. And that revolutionized English language poetry. Poetry has never been the same. You can't have modern poetry without Walt Whitman.
1: Wow, great. Um, And can you um, tell us a bit uh, maybe about his biography? So where was he born? um, When was he born? What kind of family was he born into?
2: It's interesting. He's the first English language poet to come from a working class background. The closest equivalent in 19th century Britain might be Keats, but even Keats came from a higher social status than the Whitman family. Whitman's born in 1819 on a Long Island farm. His father is an unsuccessful alcoholic (laughs) farmer. Uh, His family is highly dysfunctional. Two sisters get pregnant before marriage. One sister is severely mentally ill. A younger brother suffers from severe mental retardation. Uh, His mother is only semi-literate. This is a family from the wrong side of the tracks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, His father fails at farming on Long Island. They move to Brooklyn. Whitman leaves school at 11, which was standard, really, for working-class um, children at that era. Um, he's obviously very bright, though. Uh, he becomes a printer, which was the background for a lot of great American writers. Mark Twain, William Dean Howells were both um, printers. Uh, That was their Harvard and Yale, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as it it were, in the way that Melville says uh, a whaling ship was his Harvard and Yale. Uh, Theirs was the printer shop. And uh, he becomes a journalist, a schoolteacher, a journalist, and a writer of potboiler stories and undistinguished poems that are indistinguishable from that of any other 19th century rhymester. Then This will give hope to any late bloomers among our hearers. (laughs) At the age of 36, he publishes the first edition of Leaves of Grass, and it is the single greatest book. Of American poetry.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> we we will come on to um, Leaves of Grass in a moment. Um, when I mentioned to people that we wanted to mark um, 200th anniversary of his birth, people were quite surprised that there might be a link to church times. But you argue um, in your book, Worshipping Walt, the Whitman Disciples, that we should take him seriously as a religious poet. Can you just say a bit about why you think that's the case?
2: Absolutely. Whitman was not a conventional religious poet, but he said as an old man, I claim everything for religion. After the claims of my religion are satisfied, nothing is left for anything else, yet I've been called irreligious. An infidel, God help me, as if I could have written a word of the leaves without its religious root root ground. So Whitman saw himself as a religious poet. He was not orthodox. But there's a wonderful encounter um, after he'd published Leaves of Grass. His uh, mother, Louisa van Velser, um, had Quaker roots, but also Dutch Reformed church roots. And a Dutch Reformed minister in Brooklyn saw Whitman on the street and said, uh, uh, Walt, I hope you're keeping up the um, Reformed church uh, beliefs. And Whitman said, absolutely and the beliefs of every other church. Whitman saw himself as a transcendent figure who unified all the world religions and was able, was preaching the essential truth that underlay them all. It's not entirely different from, uh, say, the Unitarian um, Mm. religions, uh, religion of the 19th century, and it's not uh, that different, really, from the transcendentalism of Ralph Waldo Emerson, whom Whitman knew personally.
1: Yeah. I was going to ask you to set the scene a bit. Um, So you write in the book that the mid-19th century was an era of tremendous religious tumult. Can you say a bit about some of those writers that perhaps you'd come into contact with or the context in which he was writing?
2: Right. Absolutely. Well, antebellum 19th century America was an era where dozens of people saw themselves as inspired prophets ready to proclaim a new religion. The ones that people might have heard of include Nat Turner, who led the first slave rebellion, saw himself as a divinely inspired prophet. Uh, And the other one that people um, have heard about is Joseph Smith, (laughs) the founder of the Mormon religion. And uh, Smith is seen now as a unique prophet figure of the early 19th century, but in fact, the district where he grew up in uh, upstate New York is known by religious historians as the burned over district, because it was burned over and over by these religious revivals. Wow. Methodists, Baptists would hold these enormous camp meetings. Uh, people were would speak in tongues, be divinely inspired, Uh Pentecostalism has its roots uh, in the burned-over district of uh, New York of the early 19th century. And so that it was not that unusual to assume that prophetic stance Mm. in antebellum America. Mm. People were looking for new religions and new Bibles. And even the sober Ralph Waldo Emerson in his famous Divinity School address to the graduates of Harvard Divinity School uh, in the 1840s, said to each of those newly graduating ministers be newborn bards of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Write your own Bibles.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was going to come on to um, his, uh, Walt Whitman's um, poetry collection, Leaves of Grasp, and he describes it as a new Bible. And I was um, wondering if that was kind of an enormous act of hubris. Um, But you're kind of suggesting that actually at the time, no.
2: No. Well, I don't want to exaggerate. (laughs) It was an act of enormous hubris. (laughs) uh, And some people took it amiss. After all, this was, um, most people of the time were, conventionally religious and would have seen uh, it. Uh, I mean, they. Uh, uh, Joseph Smith is an interesting parallel. I mean, Smith was hated by large numbers of Americans for daring to assume the prophetic mantle. But the 1830s and 40s were really the decades and 50s were really the decades when you start seeing a split between religion, which is creedal and Institutional and orthodox, and spirituality, which is heterodox and individualistic and more mystically oriented. And people think that, oh, I'm spiritual but not religious, that that arose about the same time as the Beatles. But in fact, mm-hmm. um, it's in the 19th century that you start seeing this distinction between institutional religion and and more individualistic spirituality.
1: Mm. For, for those of us who um, aren't familiar with, with Leaves of Grass, I wondered if you could say something about it and maybe um, read some extracts that might give people a taste of the right. poem.
2: Absolutely. So the thing to know about Leaves of Grass is that it's actually at least seven different books. In 1855, Whitman publishes the first edition. It has only 12 poems. By the end of his life, he's published in 1892, um, he's publishing the, it depends how you count, the seventh or eighth or ninth edition of Leaves of Grass, and it has almost 400 poems. So over the years, he just, rather than publish separate books of poems, which is what 20th century poets do, Mm -hmm. he saw Leaves of Grass as an organic accretion. The... T- metaphor in the title Whitman took very seriously. This is not a created work of art. This grows as naturally as uh, as the grass that surrounds us. And he loved that metaphor because I think um, for a lot of reasons, grass is made up of individualistic blades or leaves isn't it mm. and yet when you look at it it's utterly unified and then of course there's the wonderful pun in the title we speak of the leaf of a book <laughs> and and yeah. and Whitman loved like any good poet loved yeah. playing with language yeah. the first poem in the first edition was untitled we know it now as song of myself it is I would like to suggest the single greatest poem of the 19th century, <laughs> English language poem, from either the United States or Great Britain. And it's got a lot of competition, I realize. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but as a standalone poem, it's the single greatest poem. It's quite long. Um, it's about um, uh, 800 lines. It takes a couple of hours to read. But it is the great epic of the american nation of the american individual and of the human soul Mm -hmm. and let me just read the opening
1: yeah lovely
2: so here's how it begins i celebrate myself and sing myself and what i assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you i'll just say a couple of things about that. Number one, notice Whitman, who was an incredible autodidact, although he left school at 11, he knew world literature uh, as well as anyone, um, is echoing Virgil, arms and the man I sing. But in a uniquely individualistic, democratic, American opening, I celebrate myself and sing myself. But then notice what i assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you the first word of this long poem song of myself is i the last word is you Mm. and whitman is identifying poet and reader in a way that makes sense in political terms sure it's a democratic statement but finally I think that's not enough. It's a metaphysical statement. It's a religious statement. Whitman believed that the divine is to be found within every person. And in that sense, he's not that different from the Quakers. Um, On his mother's side, Whitman had Quaker roots. And uh, George Fox, in the 17th century, the founder of Quakerism, um, wrote of answering that of God in every person mm. so that we have this tradition within liberal religion um, in both Britain and the United States of that the divine is imminent within human beings mm. and within nature because Whitman's a great great nature poet mm. and many people who aren't that interested say in the politics or the religion uh, go to him for his beautiful nature poetry.
1: Mm. In the book, you describe his radically democratic theology, um, and he asserts there is nothing in the known universe more divine than men and women. And another strong theme is his celebration of the body. Um, And I wondered sort of how unusual or shocking was that at the time?
2: Extraordinarily. He was a controversial poet from the beginning because of his celebration of the body. If I worship one thing, it shall be you, my body. (laughs) (laughs) He refused, Whitman overturned centuries of Christian theology and hierarchy that privileged mind and soul over body. He refused to acknowledge that hierarchy. He democratized body and soul. And there are long descriptions in Song of Myself. I'm looking here on the um, second page of the poem where he writes about the body the smoke of my own breath echoes, ripples, buzzes, whispers, love root, silk thread, crotch, and vine. He's describing nature. He's describing the body. Love root is, of course, the penis. The, so he's celebrating the body, sexuality, mm. the genitals. He refuses to say that there is anything shameful. Mm. <laughs> Everything is divine. Everything is to be celebrated. It got him in enormous trouble. He was banned in Boston, <laughs> which, of course, was a badge of pride in the 19th century. And there's a wonderful story when he was preparing the third edition of Lisa Grass, which has the poems called The Children of Adam Poems, which celebrate sexuality. Mm. They celebrate the love of man and woman. Um, he had another section... Uh, calamus that celebrates love of man and man, same-sex love, but in the poems celebrating man and um, male-female love, uh, were so shocking that Ralph Waldo Emerson took Whitman for a walk on Boston Common, the vast park-like space in the middle of Boston, and they, as they walked around Boston Common, Emerson tried to get Whitman to pull *The Children of Adam* poems. He felt they would make him a notorious poet, but not an admired one. Mm. Whitman refused.
1: Wow. Um, I was reflecting on um, what some of th- this poetry meant to the disciples um, who you talk about in your book. Um, and a lot of them seem to be drawn sort of not just to his spirituality, but to his sexuality, and yes. often felt that um, he was almost speaking directly um, to them. Could, could you say a bit about that?
2: Yes. So throughout the 20th century, Whitman's sexuality was a battleground for critics and interpreters. I think in the 21st century, thank God, uh, anyone who reads these poems carefully can acknowledge Whitman was a lover of men. In the 19th century, though, this did not mean that he identified himself as a homosexual, a particular sexual category, because that category did not exist. The word homosexual didn't come into the English language until the 1890s. What it meant was that Whitman, Whitman's democratic love for his fellow human beings incorporated men's love for other men. And he writes, it's, it's very interesting, in the 19th century, Whitman was a controversial poet, but not because of the poems that celebrate men's love for one another. Mm. It was because of the frank poems about male-female sexuality. And it's interesting, William Michael Rossetti, the brother of Christina Rossetti, and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, was the one who published the first version of Lisa Grass in England. But he felt that the English public could not take Whitman straight. And he published a bolderized version of Whitman in which he took out many of the controversial Children of Adam poems. Uh, he erased the word prostitute. He erased the word womb. <laughs> but he left all the Calvinist poems mm-hmm. because they were seen as... Unproblematic celebration of pure male love in the way of Tennyson's In Memoriam, which is another great poem about men's love uh, for other men. So these poems were not particularly controversial. And they even included lines, um, for example, The one I love most lay sleeping by me under this cover in the cool night, in the stillness. In the autumn moonbeams, his face was inclined toward me, and his arm lay lightly around my breast. And that night, I was happy. That's a beautiful celebration of what we would call gay love. In the 19th century, though, people didn't exclude men's physical affection as belonging only to a subculture. Of gay men that they believed that men's physical affection for one another was natural and Whitman celebrated that um, and took advantage of that cultural fuzziness Mm -hmm. about human sexuality to write some of the most beautiful poems of love between men and poems that are now I think rightly seen as the foundation of gay literature. Uh, along with Shakespeare's sonnets, it has to be said, and Plato's Republic. <laughs> but they're poems that in the 19th century weren't seen as part of a sub-tradition. They were seen as poems that all men could potentially identify with. Mm-hmm. He, he, Whitman said that that the germs of this love are latent in all men. And by latent, he wasn't using... In the Freudian sense of repression, he meant latent in the sense of a germ as a seed that can blossom. And this Whitman esque love can potentially blossom within every man and woman. Whitman was a 19th century man. He did not give the same attention to women, frankly, that he did to men. And yet, more than I think it's fair to say, Whitman, more than any other. English language 19th century male poet, recognized women's equality and independence.
1: Mm. I was going to ask you about um, someone who I found very fascinating in your um, book, which is Anne Gilchrist. Am I saying that right? That's
2: right. (laughs) Anne Gilchrist is um, one of the most interesting readers Whitman ever found, and she was a very cultivated woman. Um, Her husband had been the first biographer of William Blake. Uh, His name was Alexander Gilchrist, but he died young. And in fact, she finished that Blake biography with the aid of uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, William Michael Rossetti. Um, She was a close friend of Thomas and Jane Carlyle. She was a close friend of Alfred Lord Tennyson. So this was an extraordinarily refined highly educated English woman of letters. And Rossetti gave her his edition of Whitman. And she wrote him a letter that said, I've never read poems like these. They took my breath away. And so Rossetti said, well, I wouldn't give the unexpurgated Lisa Grass to most women, but I'll give it to you. (laughs) And so she read the Children of Adam poems with their celebration of male-female love, their unabashed celebration of sexuality, and their celebration of women's intelligence and strength and independence. Mm -hmm. And she was knocked out. She was bowled over. And she felt these poems were written for me. She thought, there's nobody else who can really appreciate these poems as I can. She was a widow um, who had loved her husband, had but had, as she clearly says, had not experienced intense passion with him. Here, she felt, was the passionate soulmate she had been looking for. And she wrote Whitman a rather remarkable letter which made pretty clear that she wanted to be his wife, that she felt the poet was speaking to her. She was the reader. And Whitman has these wonderful poems like, Are You the New Person Drawn Toward Me? I mean, he, he reaches out to, to readers. He's constantly um, speaking to you. He's constantly, he has um, lines such as, um, Hold me in your hands. Um, I feel your pulse, as if this book is a living thing, and as we rested on our wrist, mm. our pulse is being transmitted to Whitman, the speaker. She was intoxicated by this, um, and Whitman ignored her first letter. When she wrote him a second, he felt he couldn't ignore it, and he wrote her back, and uh, a remarkable letter says, said that you have fallen in love with the Walt Whitman of the poems but the real Walt Whitman is a very different person. <laughs> and I don't want to disappoint you, <laughs> but, but you're in love with an illusion. So I welcome your friendship at a distance. To Whitman's dismay, she was not content to stay at a distance, and she moved her entire family from London to Philadelphia in order to become Whitman's wife. Um, She had good reasons for doing it. Her daughter Beatrice wanted to become a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And at that time, in the 1870s, it was not possible for a woman to get a medical degree in Britain. You you either had to go to France or to the United States. And her daughter Beatrice enrolled in the Women's Medical College of Philadelphia and became one of the first women uh, physicians in uh, Great Britain, when she returned there, and Anne Gilchrist and Whitman met. And I think it shows what a large, wise woman she was, because after she met him, she recognized that she would not be Whitman's wife, and they would become remain just friends. Mm -hmm. And they became very close friends. Uh, Whitman had a room in her house in Philadelphia. He lived in Camden, New Jersey, across the river. Uh, He would take the ferry across the Delaware River and go to her house in Philadelphia. And um, they had what they called a little prophet's room (laughs) for him. And uh, he would sit on the front porch of her house in Philadelphia and uh, talk with her family, and uh, neighbors would drop by. And it was really an idyllic uh, place for Whitman because in Camden, New Jersey, he lived with his brother George, who was an inspector at a foundry, uh, a sort of engineering, a low-level engineering job. Uh, and Whitman said, uh, George knows pipes, not poetry. <laughs> so he would escape uh, the uncongenial atmosphere of his brother's house in Camden and g- go hang out with this extraordinarily cultivated, appreciative British family. Uh, uh, there was uh, there were two daughters and a son, and uh, Whitman was uh, clasped into the bosom of this uh, family. And um, um, the canny old poet enjoyed it greatly.
1: <laughs> um, another one of the um, disciples that you talk about... Um had been ordained into the the Church of England. Um and I wondered what you think um what Walt Whitman was holding out to um people in the church um including its own priests that that they weren't perhaps able to find in in the institution.
2: Yes, and that priest was Edward Carpenter, one of the most interesting ordained priests of the 19th century, I think it's safe to say and and uh, many listeners may have heard of Carpenter. He was quite well known among um, bohemian uh, left-wing advanced circles in the 19th century, and he's had an incredible revival in the late 20th century uh, when he's been seen as one of the fathers of uh, gay liberation, uh, because uh, Carpenter, like Whitman, was a lover of men. Um, I think the evidence is pretty strong that Carpenter and Whitman became lovers, and um, certainly, uh, Carpenter personally had a former lover's sort of jaundiced <laughs> view of Whitman. He witnessed, he, he recognized Whitman's essential uh, egotism, uh, which any great poet has, let's be frank. Um, but what he found in Whitman was that his, Carpenter was from the broad church wing of the Anglican Church. Uh, the bishop had anointed him with some misgivings after he examined Carpenter on his theology, but um, but Carpenter uh, was a disciple of C.E. Morris, uh, one of the uh, great Anglican leading lights of Christian socialism. Um, so Carpenter fit—there was a place in the Church of England in the late 19th century for a theological and social liberal like Carpenter. But he began to lose his faith, as happens. As he was losing his faith, he was discovering his sexuality, and then someone lent him the Rossetti edition (laughs) of Lisa Grass, and then he found the full American edition of Lisa Grass, and he felt here is somebody who's speaking to me, who's offering me a post-Protestant spirituality of a sort of pantheistic divine that I can embrace, who loves nature and sees God in nature as much as I do, and moreover, who validates my love for other men. And So Carpenter was intoxicated. He went over to the United States, made a pilgrimage. Uh, His was much happier uh, than Anne Gilchrist because it does seem uh, they became lovers. Um, And like Anne Gilchrist and these other disciples, he published a book about Whitman, and essays about Whitman, and helped uh, spread the gospel, really, uh, in the 19th century Britain and the U.S.,
1: um, I was I was going to uh, sort of observe that many of the disciples specifically described Walt as a new Christ. Yes. Um, there's a character, R.M. Buck, who describes him as the saviour, the redeemed of the modern world. (laughs) Um, And there's some really extraordinary scenes in your book, um, When Walt Dies, which are very reminiscent of Jesus's death and the expectation from his disciples of his ongoing presence or his possible return. Um, How sort of blasphemous would this have been regarded at the time?
2: Yeah, well... Some of these disciples were referred to as the lunatic fringe. And um, you have disciples like Carpenter, who I think are really pretty shrewd readers of Whitman, who find the spiritual essence um, of Whitman and understand how he comes out of the Judeo-Christian tradition but brings together German um, idealist philosophy of the 19th century, brings insights from Asian religion. This was the era when people were discovering uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and um, so making these um, synthetic uh, cosmopolitan Religions. Uh, it's um, Moncure Conway, who's a Whitman disciple and becomes a famous figure in Britain, um, publishes what he calls the World Bible, <laughs> which is composed of scriptures from Hindu and Buddhist and Christian and Islam traditions. So there's a lot of the disciples who view Whitman in these um, syncretic and cosmopolitan terms. But there's a couple of the disciples, and R.M. Buck is the one you mentioned, who's a Canadian. Uh, he's a physician, a alienist, which was the 19th century term for psychiatrist. He's the superintendent of a large insane asylum in Ontario. And he is given towards hero worship. He had a theory of religion that there were... Occasionally, in human history, people who exhibited a spiritual consciousness beyond that of anybody else at their time. He saw Buddha as such a figure. He saw Jesus as such a figure. And he saw Walt Whitman <laughs> as such a figure. And he, along with a handful of other disciples, really imagined that the religion of Whitmanism could supplant Christianity. Mm. Now, in the 19th century, this is not a preposterous idea. Look at uh, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, which was spreading across the world uh, uh, even then. Uh, look at Christian science, uh, the creation of Maker, uh, Mary uh, Baker Eddy. So it was not preposterous to think that Perhaps a new uh, world-changing uh, religion might emerge with leaves of grass uh, as its foundation. These were these were progressives, and they imagined um, just as politics is going to leave the old class-based special interest politics behind, religion is going to leave uh, the old religions uh, behind for in favor of this new pantheistic spirituality embodied in Leaves of Grass.
1: I was wondering sort of how difficult it is to get a picture of who the real Walt Whitman was, potentially the founder of this new religion. So there's the man, um, there's the poet, there's the persona in Leaves of Grass, and then there's this, um, I guess, kind of projection that some of his disciples had. So how, how easy do you find it to get a sense of who this person that you've studied really is?
2: Oh, it's impossible. (laughs) If you pick up the first edition of Lisa Grass, physically it's one of the most interesting books in the world. It ranks along with Shakespeare's first folio in terms of just as a book. Because on the cover and on the title page, there's no author. It's just Lisa Grass. And the name Walt Whitman is only mentioned in the body of the book itself. On the copyright page, It says, copyright, Brooklyn, New York, 1855, Walter Whitman, Jr. And then you get to page 19 of that first poem, Song of Myself, before you get the line, Walt Whitman, one of the roughs, a cosmos. (laughs) Walt Whitman is an invented figure, a figure out of folklore, like Paul Bunyan, uh, uh, you know, this American lumberjack, mythic lumberjack uh, figure who could, uh, uh, you know, chop down a thousand trees a day. Uh, Walt Whitman, similarly, is a figure out of folklore. And let me read you a little passage from Song of Myself. Uh, where he casts himself as prophet of a new religion designed to supplant all previous beliefs. Magnifying and applying come I, outbidding at the start the old cautious hucksters, taking myself the exact dimensions of Jehovah, lithographing Kronos, Zeus his son, and Hercules his grandson, buying drafts of Osiris, Isis, Bellus, Brahma, Buddha, in my portfolio placing loose, Allah on a leaf, the crucifix engraved, with Odin and the hideous faced Mexitli, and every idol and image taking them all for what they are worth and not a cent more, admitting they were alive and did the work of their days, accepting the rough deeds sketches to fill out better in myself, bestowing them freely on each man and woman I see. This is not Walter Whitman, Jr. of Brooklyn. This is this world-bestriding, world-changing religious figure. But ultimately, the truth that Whitman acknowledges, remember, is you and I are equally divine. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, he's this larger-than-life figure. On the other, he's this poet who refuses to put his name on the title page of the book. Mm -hmm. And when people ask him about that, he says, It's not my book. It's yours as much as anybody's. Whitman wants each of us to recognize the divine power within us.
1: I wondered if you could say something maybe a bit about how his reputation has waxed and and waned over the years. So I I remember um, studying leaves of grass um, at university, Um, but I know sort of in the book you hint that actually it's a reputation which has had many different kind of permutations. It
2: did indeed. Um, In the 19th century, Whitman is regarded as disreputable. He's not respectable. And when... um, this famous critic Thomas Higginson first reads Emily Dickinson's poems in manuscript. They're so shocking. They're so new. He says, "Have you read Mister Whitman?" And she says, "No. I've been told he is not respectable." <laughs> so that's his reputation in the nineteenth century. That he's um, he's he's uh, too bold, uh, too sexual, too bodily. Um, uh, he's not somebody who can be read aloud by the fireside. Whitman is the poet of the avant-garde, the bohemian, and that's true in both the U.S. and, and um, the U.K. in the 19th century. In the early 20th century, though, the discipline of American literature s- starts being taught and you start getting your first university courses on American literature. Well, if you're going to have a course in American literature, you need a canon. And who are our great uh, poets? Well, we've got the fireside poets, people like uh, Whittier and Lowell. um, And they're very respectable. But let's be frank, they're not as good. As nineteenth-century uh, English poets, they can't—they can't—you uh, uh, know—you can't compare them to Shelley or Keats or Byron or Coleridge or Wordsworth. Uh, what does America have? America has Walt Whitman. So Whitman becomes a foundation of this new twentieth-century discipline of American literature. But to do that, you got to push aside the messy parts. We're not going to identify uh, Whitman as. Uh, with this new category of the homosexual. Oh, no, no, no. So they they push aside the homosexual poems and deny that part of Whitman. But you also can't identify him as being um, the poet that all these religious crazies celebrated. So we've got to put that aside. And instead, they put Whitman in the tradition of nature poets, like Wordsworth. Uh, they put him in uh, uh, the tradition of... Uh, lyric poets like Tennyson or perhaps epic poets uh, and link him to uh, Horace and Virgil uh, uh, and Homer. So he becomes a respectable part of the canon of American uh, literature in, uh, in the 20th century. What's exciting in the last 25 years? of Whitman scholarship is to see the rediscovered Whitmans, the gay Whitman, the political Whitman and the religious Whitman. In
1: 1890 one of the disciples asks, do you suppose a thousand years from now people will be celebrating the birth of Walt Whitman as they are now the birth of Christ? And they spoke about the cause and I think one of the tensions that you pick out in the book is actually that Whitman says he doesn't want to establish a church which makes it quite difficult to think about how do you keep his legacy alive and I suppose I wonder what you think some of his disciples would have made of of his place today and how he's regarded.
2: It varied from person to person. Um, One wing of the disciples thought if you don't understand Whitman as a religious poet and if you you got to take Lisa Grass as a whole, it's like the Bible. You can't pick and choose your verses. <laughs> For those uh, disciples, I think would be appalled at uh, what has become of Whitman, but the more extreme among them. But there were many other of these 19th century disciples, or or those who saw in Whitman a religious poet. Um, John Burroughs is uh, perhaps the best example. Who I think would be Pleased to see Whitman in the 21st century is not exclusively the property of professors and universities. He's a poet who is widely read and celebrated by all kinds of people, who gets quoted constantly, who's part of American popular (laughs) culture— I mean, uh, you can go on YouTube and see uh, Levi's Jeans um, put out ads that featured quotations from Lisa Grass. And Whitman would be delighted by that, (laughs) that he's been embraced by contemporary popular culture. And I think the wisest uh, of his 19th century disciples would be pleased, too, to see Whitman embraced worldwide as, as he is now.
1: You write that for many readers, Leaves of Grass is not just a book of poetry, but the foundation of their spiritual lives. Um, And I just wonder if if maybe we could wrap up by you saying um, what you think gives it that power and and perhaps what it's meant for you, because you write both at the start and the end of the book that it has played a part in your own kind of spiritual journey.
2: Sure, sure. You know, I'm a baby boomer uh, and I came to maturity in the nineteen 70s and um, I could go to my local bookstore and s- see all these um, volumes of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism and what got labeled New Age uh, spirituality and um, so there were a lot of people then and now who uh, define what uh, those of us in religious studies call a seeker spirituality who find their spiritual home not within any institutional church, but um, who find their spiritual home in an eclectic, um, cosmopolitan range of texts. And for many, many people, Lisa Grass is one of those texts. I'd like to read you what I think may be the single most important passage in Whitman. If you're interested in Whitman as a religious writer, and it's one of the great mystical passages in world literature. It ranks up there with anything in the Bhagavad Gita or in the writing of Saint uh, Teresa of Avila. It's a uh, account of a mystical experience. And it comes very early in the first poem of his first edition of Lisa Grass, Song of Myself. Even though it comes so early in the poem, it's really the climax of the poem. It represents a union of the poet and soul. And one way to read this wonderful poem, Song of Myself, is as, it's a poem about how does the world look to you after you've had a mystical experience? (laughs) And we often speak of mysticism as if it were something rare. But in fact, they've done polling in the United States. Something like 40% of Americans say they've had a mystical experience. So this is not a rare thing. Here's Whitman. I believe in you, my soul. The other I am must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Loaf with me on the grass, loose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music or rhyme I want, not custom or lecture, not even the best. Only the lull I like, the hum of your velvet voice. I mind How once we lay such a transparent summer morning, how you settled your head athwart my hips, and gently turned over upon me, and parted the shirt from my bosom bone, and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart, and reached till you felt my beard, and reached till you held my feet, swiftly arose and spread around me the peace and knowledge that pass all the argument of the earth." and I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own, and I know that the Spirit of God is the brother of my own, and that all the men ever born are also my brothers, and the women my sisters and lovers, and that a kelson of the creation is love. The kelson is part of the keel of the ship. It's what keeps the ship sailing straight. And Whitman is saying, that the kelson of the universe is love that's not a new insight mystics for thousands of years have said that the essence of the universe is love but whitman expresses it in this gorgeous poetry that's saturated with sexual imagery people you know my students will ask me professor robertson what's going on in here is this is this A sexual encounter between the uh, poet and his soul? Is it heterosexual? Is it homosexual? Is it just metaphoric? And always I answer, yes. (laughs) It's all of those.
1: Perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times Podcast.
0: Thank you.